this podcast, including any related materials, such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. The podcast presenters' views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of their research partners and collaborators, collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Have you ever wondered about the high cost of functional medicine, both seeing practitioners and also the laboratory testing? Today's guest knows how to solve this problem. What I love, what I think is so fresh about your message is that you have a different way. You have a much more affordable kind of common sense approach to this work. Can you explain? Well, thank you. Uh, and, and I agree. It, it does seem that functional medicine is way too expensive, unnecessarily so. And we do need to reform this both from the doctor end and from the patient end. Because if the consumers are continued, uh, continually educated on this model that you have to do a bunch of testing if you don't feel well, they're going to keep going to the doctor's offices demanding that. And that's going to put this reinforcing pressure on the doctor to do more. With me today on the practice is Dr. Michael Ruscio a chiropractor who is leading the charge to make integrative and functional medicine more affordable, effective, and practical. I'm so excited to be here today with Dr. Michael Ruscio. So I just wanna say to our listeners that um, we're filming here in my house. Thank you so much for coming over to join me today. And the air conditioning just kicked on. You're gonna hear my dog walking around because my dog really likes Dr. Ruscio. And it's 102 (laughs) degrees outside. It's really hot outside. So we're talking about thyroids and functional medicine, how to make it affordable, how to make it practical. So I wanna start with this issue of the cost of functional medicine. <laughs> so you and I are both working to transform our broken healthcare system, to figure out from the top down with clinicians and also from the bottom up with consumers and patients, how do we do this? Mm-hmm. We both have practiced functional medicine for some time right. and we've had experience with the, the very expensive workup, you know, the mm-hmm. $20,000 workup. So what I love, what I think is so fresh about your message is that you have a different way. You have a much more affordable kind of common sense approach to this work. Can you explain? Well, thank you. Uh, And and I agree. It it does seem that functional medicine is way too expensive, unnecessarily so. And we do need to reform this both from the doctor end and from the patient end. Because if the consumers are continued Uh, continually educated on this model that you have to do a bunch of testing if you don't feel well, they're going to keep going to the doctor's offices demanding that. And that's going to put this reinforcing pressure on the doctor to do more. So there's culpability on both the patient end and on the doctor end. So I do think that's totally correct, that we have to reform this from both the patient education side and from the doctor education side. And 
I think what's happened here, I talk about this in, in, in Healthy Gut, Healthy You. I call it the freedom effect. If, if you ever um, knew someone who went to college and that was their first taste of freedom, they go crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And they're, they're drunk all the time and they can't handle themselves. They and, eat too much. Yeah, and, and their, their grades fall because they're, they're so used to having all the structure in place by their parents potentially. And when that wasn't there, they didn't know how to handle that freedom. I think we see that same phenomenon occur in medicine where you're used to being kind of in this box of here's what the standard you know, algorithm for the medical system is. And then you finally leave that and you say, oh, I can test all these things that seem interesting to me, which is you know, great in one vein where we're trying to do more, but we have to bridle that and really be disciplined and, and not just do what seems interesting, but really go through a process of, well, what is the validation behind this marker? What kind of clinical utility does it have in terms of predictive value for a certain therapy or, or what have you? And unfortunately, that's oftentimes not done. And when you actually do fact check some of the markers, some of the tests, you'll find that there's not this solid scientific case. Right. At, at some, I mean, sometimes it's borderline fraudulent. This is why some labs have literally been sued and pled guilty to fraudulent practices. And then sometimes the case is, is fairly weak. And so if you're then saying, well, there's this weak test, there's this other weak test, there's these other three semi-weak tests, do I really need to do all these things? Or can I focus on one test that's looking at a foundational pillar issue that's fairly well validated and focus on that one thing and then reevaluate at the end and see where we are? That approach, which is more stepwise and, and more algorithmic, can save a ton of money, and I say that as someone who is doing a fourth, maybe, of the testing I was doing seven years ago, yet my patient results are far better. This is, this is so powerful. So I wanna get into the foundational tests. I also wanna just recap some of what I heard because I, I think this is so important that this freedom effect is almost like the rookie mistake that we make when we first right. start doing functional medicine. Right. And I would agree with you. I don't do as much testing as I used to. Right. And I, I think it would be helpful to talk about some of those foundational tests, the ones that really move the needle when mm -hmm. it comes to health and are well validated. You know, I always was taught that about 15% of the prescriptions that I was taught to give are supported by randomized trials, meaning 85% of them are not right. supported by randomized <laughs> trials. Scary, but I yeah. imagine it's, it's similar when it comes to laboratory testing. So... Another thing I want to say about this is when I was building a bridge from allopathic medical practice to integrative and functional precision medical practice, I started within the framework of seeing 40 patients a day with really simple tools, mm -hmm. things like the elimination diet, mm -hmm. things like um, motivational questioning, right. things like um, basic tests such as hemoglobin A1C, sure. fasting glucose, maybe fasting insulin, right. um, an ALT to look at liver enzymes and kind right. of assess for um, non-alcoholic fatty liver. So really simple testing actually gave me a ton of information. Sure. And I wouldn't say that all the testing that I started to do once I was more in the functional medicine world, they gave me insights, but whether it was worth the cost, I think is debatable. That is the question, yeah. And I should also mention that I can see someone who's watching this say, well, my patients are more chronic and they need further testing. 
So as someone who specializes in GI, and I see patients routinely who have been to a few conventional doctors, a few functional doctors, done maybe a, a, a book you know, or online kind of program, I can tell you that even for the complex cases, you oftentimes don't need more elaborate testing. And so that's a, that's a canard that I think we all need to kind of shine some light on uh, because there's this, there's this um, erroneous assumption that more testing equates to better results. And that's not true. And in fact, I've argued in our clinician's newsletter the exact opposite. And if you think about it like a computer program, if you have too many windows open, sometimes your computer runs more slowly because it, it can't process all the data. Mm -hmm. So if you're running 10 tests, it's very hard as a clinician to see patterns, to establish cause and effect, because there's so much going on. And this also, I think, feeds this excessive model where yeah, if we do all of this, chances are something's going to work. And so then the clinician says, yeah, see, it was the MTHFR and the adrenals and the binders and the this and the that, and we needed to do all of this in order to get the patient well. And what they're not able to see is there was perhaps one or two key interventions that led to the improvement and everything else was just this superfluous um, waste. Yeah, and, this is so important. It's almost like a spray and pray approach, right? right? Like you, you hit all these different targets and you hope that something is going to help the patient feel better. Yeah. And it's, um, we have to be smarter about this. And the travesty is clinicians don't learn. When you are doing more than you can adequately assess the cause and effect from, then you don't learn what a typical case who responds to this therapy looks like in terms of initial presentation and then in terms of what their road of response looks like. And so I, I've also argued in our clinician's newsletter that we need to narrow the focus so we can learn from that focus. We need to do one or two things at a time so we can learn what does this look like in terms of the appropriate response or, or what does it look like when they're not getting the appropriate response and so now we want to consider something else. And you know, th this has been termed, rather than using a horizontal differential diagnosis, we use a vertical differential diagnosis or an algorithm. And so for every patient, and this is all something I do in Healthy Good Healthy You, I try to give just a layperson an iteration of this. We take all the potential things that could be wrong with a person and causing their symptoms. And then we organize them vertically from the highest probability of that being the root cause issue to kind of your, your more secondary tertiary uh, quaternary considerations that are less commonly the problem but could be the problem, and we work up to them partially through this process of elimination. This is cool. Okay, so I want to I want to contextualize this. Can I give you a patient? Sure. <laughs> so yeah. a hypothetical patient, forty-four year old woman with brain fog, maybe a little bit of um, extra fat at her belly. Sure. So um, say her body mass index is like twenty-six, twenty-seven. Okay. So how do you think through that? I want to hear about maybe um, some of the key questions that you think are important. I know you would do a full history and exam, but also what are those foundational tests? Sure. So a lot of figuring out where to go with the patient, I'm able to get from our initial paperwork. And, and so 
we just ask, and this is something that comes back to the, the other um, thing you said earlier, which is seeing 40 patients a day. Sometimes functional medicine then purports, well, we need to be spending two hours with someone. And there's, there's kind of this you know, academic one-upping contest, which is, well, I, I spend an hour and a half with my patients. Well, well I spend two hours with them. Well, I spend three. It's like, whoa. Like, there's a certain point at which you're not really doing anything other than maybe giving the patient a chance to vent, which can be clinically relevant. But most of the initial exams with patients, I spend about 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually more beneficial to give them, here's what I need, and they can think about it. And it's not, tell me about this. And you put them on the spot. They haven't had a chance to think about it. They haven't had a chance to reflect. They will almost invariably forget things when all the questions are done directly on the spot. So as much as I think we like to think that a longer exam equals better, I prefer to ask most of those questions in our paperwork. And then I have, I have about a 90% accurate estimation of what's going on with that patient when I walk in. Mm -hmm. And then I'm just trying to make sure I have all my hypotheses granularized and, and I'm correct. And, and I ask clarifying questions. So this is super cool. What I love about it is that you can scale this. Yeah. So you have a system for collecting historical data and for codifying it, for putting it into categories and, and developing your hypothesis that you're then gonna test when you see the patient. Exactly. It's kind of the perfect setup for an N of one study on each of the patients that you see. Yeah, and, and that, that's allowed me to do many of these things that I think are, are different from the typical functional medicine party line in terms of a lot less testing. Because once you have this, this precise ability to pick into what you need from the history, and then you use that to create this vertical differential diagnosis, and then you're working through it one step at a time, you know, now you can get a sense for, okay, here's the thing that I'm honed in on, here's how the patient is done. And you can also say, boy, the testing that I did about this, did it really change the treatment outcome in a meaningful way? But it's hard to see that if there's all these other things going on at the same time in terms of all these other test results, all these other markers that you're treating. Um, so yeah, I th definitely think we can be a bit more parsimonious with our use of, of lab testing. You know, and to your question about lab testing, part of that is informed by what your initial clinical suspicion is. Um, but there are, there are a few that I think are fairly prevalent. Imbalances in the GI would be one. Yes. And then frank hormonal imbalances, namely true hypothyroid, and trying to get a delineation of, is this true hypothyroid or is this kind of secondary conversion issues that aren't really the problem at all? They're just a symptom of a problem somewhere else we have to find. So maybe break that down okay. a little bit more for a Yeah, because all these can be broken down into their own. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. Uh, so the thyroid one specifically? I think that would be helpful to talk a bit about the thyroid. Yeah. And what do you mean by that? You know, are you talking about Hashimoto's thyroiditis, the cause of 95% of hypothyroidism? And then you're talking about conversion. So yeah. if you could just explore so, that. So bit. let's really quick talk about the Hashimoto's being responsible for the majority of hypothyroidism, which is true. But sometimes this gets conflated with another, I think, erroneous belief that's that's harmful to patients, which is that because you, you know, if you have Hashimoto's, that guarantees you're going to become hypothyroid. And that, and so this is these are two things that are getting conflated yes, yes. that shouldn't. And there was one long-term study in Tehran that really looked at this in a prospective manner, and they found about. Uh, I believe it was a nine to 18% of people with Hashimoto's actually became hypothyroid, which 
which I think is really yeah. freeing for patients to know. That's which, super exciting. Which means you're not doomed. I think I heard a podcast on this that you did where they talked about kind of the threshold for the antibodies, antibodies yeah. right? Yeah. So can you speak to that for yeah. a moment? Because I think this is yeah. this is a very hopeful message. Yeah, so it's a very hopeful message, meaning, you know, sometimes people come in with the, and they're very healthy and they just have high TPO antibodies and they're freaked out. What's high t TPO? So th that's your, it's your question. So firstly, let's just put on the table and be clear on that if you do have Hashimoto's, you have a fairly low probability that you'll actually become full-blown hypothyroid. Even though it's the primary cause of hypothyroidism, most of the people who have Hashimoto's actually don't become hypothyroid. So that's good. Mm -hmm. But we still can look at the lab values to try to predict risk. And this is from another group of researchers who looked at this in a prospective fashion. And they found that the threshold for predicting if you had a moderate risk or no risk, it wasn't even a high risk when they found that the threshold was, was traversed, was 500 for your TPO antibodies. Which is pretty high. Which, yeah, it is. It is. Well, I mean... Some patients will come in 1,200, mm -hmm. 1,600. Mm -hmm. Other patients will come in in the low hundreds, you know, mm -hmm. 100, 200, 300. Mm -hmm. So that's been very informative where I'll explain to patients that if you're in the 100, 200, 300, 400 range, I'm not that worried. Mm -hmm. And why this is so freeing is I think many clinicians will be, will be nodding their heads in agreement that people may come in very high, above 1,000. And then we do whatever work we're going to do, vitamin D, elimination diets, gut work, and the antibodies come down to maybe, you know, 412. And the patient's feeling a lot better. But then the clinician is saying, well, geez, the antibodies are still high according to how I'm trained. And if we can just get this, this inflection point correct, the narrative should be you're no longer really, at, you're, you're at a very minimal risk of progression to true hypothyroidism when you're now at this 412, especially when we contextualize this with you're feeling better. Rather than you know, beating them over the head, going the other way and saying, your antibodies are still high. Is there gluten in your shampoo? Is there, <laughs> right? And just going down this crazy- Turning their life upside down. Yeah, and, yeah. and that, that will do damage to people psychologically. And, and this is something I think functional medicine is overlooking. These overzealous recommendations are really creating a lot of psychological turmoil in people. And that is in many cases, more destructive than the little bit of benefit they would have gotten by getting on a gluten-free shampoo or, or whatever it is. And I say that in jest. There are some people who are so exquisitely yes, sensitive, absolutely. but that's a very small subset of people. So we want to be careful not to issue that uh, recommendation just you know willy-nilly. Absolutely. So um, back to our 44-year-old with brain yes. fog and a little belly fat. So you're gonna have a sense from the forms that she fills out before she comes to see you what your hypotheses are. Can you just riff with me a little bit, yeah. you know, like a typical scenario? Yeah, and so, and so, and, and these aren't necessarily magical forms, it's just good clinical horse sense. Do they have a lot of digestive symptoms that they're not complaining about? So she, say she has none. Okay, so if she has none. Because you made this point earlier, yep. which I think is so important yep. that, you know, I see this too. I have patients who have zero symptoms and yet they have rip-roaring gut issues. Sure. They yep. have increased intestinal permeability, they have dysbiosis, Absolutely. maybe they have loss of microbial diversity, they just had a course of antibiotics. Absolutely. And so I think it's it's important to understand that it may be the yep. most important takeaway. Yep. No, I, I agree, and I, and I look at this kind of in, in two ways. If someone has digestive symptoms, you know there's a gut problem. If someone does not have GI symptoms, but they have other systems where symptoms are manifesting, neurological, rheumatological, dermatological, whatever it is, 
you, there still could be a gut problem that's causing that. And we're seeing this in the published literature now filtering in a variety of findings. So hierarchically, I always will consider gut interventions even if there's no gut symptoms. But it's a red flag waving in your face if they're constipated and they have abdominal pain. Yes. Right, but the gut is going to be something that we want to evaluate because, again, we know that you can have silent gut inflammation only manifesting in the brain or in the joints or in the skin or metabolically. Um, so that's one thing I'm just keying in on, you know, is there an obvious GI issue here? Right? And th then there's some nuances in terms of are they diarrheal type, are they constipation type? Because if they're constipated, you can give them some magnesium and that'll get them moving. If they have diarrhea, we don't want to give them magnesium because that's going to facilitate too much, you know, more of the problem they already have. Um, so there's just some basics that you look at there and you also look at what's their diet, right? Is this the person who went paleo, went low FODMAP, went low FODMAP plus SCD, went low FODMAP plus SCD plus low oxygen plus low histamine? Then it's like, okay, <laughs> leave your diet alone, right? The problem is probably not your diet. If they're saying, well, I tried vegetarian once in college and I felt okay, and now I have really no eating plan, I try to eat healthy. So, well, that's such a broad thing, and, and they've displayed that they haven't really been putting a lot of effort into their diet necessarily, historically. So that's where many of their symptoms may be coming from a simple dietary mess. And then you can go through a couple different dietary protocols, your low-hanging fruit, your elimination, your low FODMAP, um, and then see where you get. Um, so in terms of you know, what are we looking for else in the history? You can look for simple signs of female hormone imbalances. Yes. Right? Depending on their age, you know, f you know, early 40s, mid 40s, they're almost for certain going to still be cycling, but not guaranteed. Right. Um, so you, know, you want to know. Probably low progesterone. Yeah. Probably yeah. stressed. Mm -hmm. And and are they having things like hot flashing, brain fog? Um, do they have an exacerbation of any GI symptoms when they're uh, ovulating or maybe when they're menstruating. So you just look at just a, a good, simple kind of female hormone symptom survey, and you're looking for, is there a lot of signal in that in that section of, of your paperwork? Thyroid is, it's much harder to get a read on if they are hypothyroid from a questionnaire, although there are validated questionnaires. Um, I can't say I found them to be super clinically useful, although I haven't, I haven't updated my paperwork to use a sanctioned, research-validated thyroid questionnaire. Um, but knowing some of those questions, some of those questions do have a significant amount of overlap with other potential causes. So for thyroid, I just look more so at lab work because, mm -hmm. you know, and this is a maverick thing to say, I guess, but it's fairly easy to distinguish, are they truly hypothyroid and they need medication, they need hormone, or is a thyroid okay and you're seeing kind of downstream noise. So TSH and free T4 will tell you if they're hypothyroid, how the gland is functioning. If that checks out, but you're seeing, let's say, high reverse T3, low T3, mm -hmm. then that's not really a thyroid problem. Mm -hmm. and, and how it's getting conflated as such is really beyond me, because mm -hmm. we know via textbook knowledge that that's usually an issue of inflammation and infection, being too low carb, too low calorie, and some of that's not even bad. I've talked many times about this, this great paleo diet and lifestyle study that put people on paleo diet, paleo lifestyle, and they all got healthier. They were sleeping better, mm -hmm. they had better energy, they mm -hmm. lost body fat, mm -hmm. but oh my God, their reverse T3 went up a little bit. Why? Well, they were under a healthy metabolic stress, 
And part of what happens is your body's hormones skew in an adaptation to a stress. But if that's happening in someone who just lost seven pounds, is sleeping better, and has better energy, then that tells you that the, the reverse T3 being high is more so an adaptation to this health-promoting kind of hormetic stressor that they're, that they're under. And it's not an indicator that the thyroid's broken. This is such a good point because I, I feel like, you know, the more that I learn about health and how to quantify health, the more that I, I feel like I understand that there's all these homeostatic mechanisms in the body. Right. And reverse T3 is just one of those homeostatic yeah. mechanisms. Agreed. So, Agreed. you know, a group of subjects that are put on a paleo diet, paleo lifestyle, the metabolic stress is a good thing. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's sort of like a hormetic um, push in a certain direction that's going to help them um, achieve more metabolic flexibility and be healthier, healthier yeah. in the long run. Well said. So with your... With the questionnaires that you asked, I'm curious on history, if you're able to differentiate well between those who have, say, um, primary hypothyroidism versus uh, a conversion issue. Mm. Like, do you find that, um, you know, asking kind of the full spectrum of thyroid questions, you know, not just constipation, but cold and heat intolerance and no. hair loss, like, is that helpful? No, I've, I've really found it's not helpful because there are so many other things that can cause those symptoms. Yes, and they're nonspecific. They're very nonspecific. Um, we, there's, there are a couple that more so do predict if someone's going to be true hypothyroid, but... How hard is it to run a TSH yes. and a 3T4? Yes. Um, so that just seems so much easier and more accurate of a play that I will just evaluate TSH and uh, T4. So I'm not saying that there's never a place for combination therapy, but what I'm saying is in the thyroid algorithm, gut should come first before a combination therapy should be administered. And this is because for the patient, they have the highest probability of symptomatic resolution when they follow that, that uh, progression. Makes sense. So foundational tests. We're going to put TSH and T4 into the foundational yeah. test category. What else are you going to test this we patient gut, for? We should probably talk about the, uh, what gut testing you could do. Yes, please. Um, so you can do a SIBO breath test, but I don't think we can make an airtight case that you have to do a SIBO breath test. You could do a stool test. Um, Which stool test? So right now, the two that I like the most are doctor's data, parasitology, 3X with H. pylori is specifically what I run. Uh, that's their culture-based study. Or the GI map. And they, they both have weaknesses. Yes. And they, they both... I think are are making claims that are slightly ahead of what the evidence fully supports. I think doctors' data has slightly better evidence. I think JMAP's trying to get there. You know, essentially, these two tests are, have kind of been competing in terms of the methodologies. And the MALDI-TOF, which is what doctors' data uses, has one study showing it to be superior to PCR, which is the DNA-based GIMAP test methodology. But the GIMAP is using an updated version of the PCR but that hasn't been tested yet. Mm -hmm. So it should be better than the doctor's data Molitoff, but that hasn't been documented yet. Mm -hmm. So they're both good tests, don't get me wrong. We're getting into like the, the cutting edge analysis here of which one is better. They're both good tests. Dr. Zeta does have that one study supporting the claim that Molitoff is better than DNA or PCR, which is what GI Map uses, but GI Map is using an updated version of that, and that might be better. The con with the GI map is that it will report false positive. Can you give some examples of false positives? H. pylori, um, Salmonella, Shigella, uh, C. diff. You, know, you will see Salmonella. false. Uh, 
Um, potentially, yeah. I mean, what, it's not necessarily one organism that is false positive uh, prone. It's more so that the technology, because it's so sensitive, because it's so sensitive yes. will sometimes pick up not, not enough to really be indicative of that organism actually being there. So you have to contextualize the patient results and the patient symptoms. And oftentimes in functional medicine, we're so proclamatory, oh, I found the cause, that we, we don't really bridle ourselves. It's a big problem in functional medicine. We're all drinking the Kool-Aid mm -hmm. and no one's saying, you know, guys, have you thought about maybe slowing down a little bit? This person is fully asymptomatic mm -hmm. and they, they're showing that they have a major infection that should cause diarrhea. And <laughs> you're not seeing the disparity here? So I have to ask about Direct-to-consumer testing. Sure. I feel like, you know, as I as I go deeper into the literature on the microbiome, and I see, um, you know, sort of this great promise, but also a pretty long delay in how understanding the microbiome is really going to change clinical practice. I also see the rise of direct-to-consumer testing. We know that um, some companies even have been raided by the FBI recently for um, their practices. I see a lot of wild claims, and I don't think we're there yet in terms of really understanding the microbiome yeah. and what it means, how it maps onto clinical conditions. What's your take on this? Yeah, no, I fully agree. I think that's really well said. And you know, again, there's there's this unfortunate situation where people are sick and they're looking to improve how they're feeling, and some lab companies just make claims that they can't support. Now, whether this is being done with malicious intent or it's just honest ignorance. It's probably a combination of the two. I like to attribute you know, uh, inappropriate claims more so to ignorance than I do to malicious yes. intent. Yes. Um, so I'll give people the benefit of the doubt. But as a healthcare consumer, you're going to be on the short end of that transaction no matter what the reason behind it is. I've interviewed Rob Knight, who's one of the leading microbiome researchers in the world. I think he's the most reliable, honestly. Mm -hmm. And, and he's come straight out and said you should not be using microbiome mapping analyses in clinical practice because they're not there yet. Which is and, and he's he's the world expert. And he's, the and world he's expert. saying we're not there yet yeah. with the data that we have that I've mm -hmm. been doing in my lab for a few decades. And I've been saying that that same thing for years now. And, and I, I really gained a lot of respect for Professor Knight. We were both lecturing at the uh, National Congress on Natural Medicine in Australia in 2017, I want to say. And Rob Knight was, I believe, on my left, and someone asked me what I felt about these direct-to-consumer, or just in general, what I think about the microbiome tests. And I was very honest in saying, I really don't see any place for them clinically. I've been following the literature, and they're just not at a point where they can be predictive or diagnostic yet. And I'm thinking, oh God, I hope I don't really offend <laughs> Rob Knight. But you were honest. I was honest, but he was shaking his head in agreement with he everything totally that agreed. I was saying. I was, yeah. I was like, yes. So it's nice to see when the leading researcher and, and myself are coming to the same conclusion. But if you look at the data, honestly, that's the only conclusion you can really draw. We're yes. getting close. Some of the tests are getting close. Um, but no, the, the, the promise that mapping out all your microbes is going to give you this miracle cure, more often what you see is, either follow the low FODMAP diet or eat more prebiotics. Yes. It's like, wow. That is gut, that really is, good. That is gut 101. But, well, but, but, the data is really good on prebiotics, right? I mean, that's I would say that's one area where I think we've actually made great strides. You mean in, in clinical trials with prebiotics? Clinical trials, and I find it clinically. Like, 
you know, I had this period of time where I was experimenting, like with the ketogenic diet. Right. And I was trying it myself. I did it with my husband. Of course, he had wild success on it. I didn't. And I was also trying it in some of my patients. And I think when you start to reduce prebiotic fibers, it really makes a big difference on the gut. In a, so, in a bad way. In a bad way. Well, there, there's also a counterargument that you can make against that. And, and I, I think both points are right and both points are a little bit wrong. I mean, the point being prebiotics are good or prebiotics are, are maybe bad. And it just depends on where someone is on their gut That's health right. healing journey. Right. Some the, people don't tolerate them. The more progressed someone's gut pathologies are, the more sensitive, at least initially, they're going to be to prebiotics. And this yes. is where the utility of something like a lower carb or a low FODMAP diet comes in. Eventually, we should be moving to the broadest diet possible as the person heals. In healthier populations, it does seem that prebiotic supplementation or just a diet that's higher in fruits and vegetables has merit. But I think the, the main issue here, the main myth, is that for people who are struggling with, with poor gut health, they're often told that prebiotics are gonna solve all their problems, and that works for the people with very mild gut issues, yes. and it makes people worse who have more advanced gut issues. Yes. So, and it's, it's tricky trying to kind of navigate that, which, which is why in Healthy Gut Healthy You, I lay out an algorithm, and there's kind of this fork in the road early on in the book. If you're highly symptomatic, we're gonna wait on the prebiotics. If you're only mildly symptomatic, we can give those a trial earlier on, and you have a higher probability of benefiting from those. That's so right. there, there, is, there is, I think, that navigation that needs to be you know, adjusted for. Totally agree. How's your intestinal permeability? Via a certain measure or just, because that, that's a tricky question. Right, right? Um, what's your sense of it? Probably pretty darn good, especially compared to, so I had a parasite in college, and at that point it was, if I would have an exam coming up, I wouldn't eat because it was kind of like a coin toss. I would get brain fog or I would not get brain fog. Any meal, didn't matter what the meal, didn't matter how clean it was. It was just this, and a lot of patients go through this obviously where they say, I'm reacting to foods and there's no rhyme or reason. And that's what happens when you have a, a highly leaky gut. So during the parasite, couldn't eat like anything. Six months afterwards, still super sensitive. Yes. And then a few years that were still, I didn't do great on spinach, I didn't do great on eggs, I didn't do great on beef. And fortunately now, pretty much everything is fair game. Oh, that's good. So, uh, yeah. so I want to I want to make sure people understand this. So you're talking about how you had increased intestinal permeability related to this parasite. Right. And so you had dysbiosis. You had an imbalance with mm -hmm. the microbes in your gut. Um, sounds like you healed that. You moved on from that. But I, I think it's so important to understand some of these symptoms. A lot of people think brain fog and they don't think the gut. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's such a key message with mm -hmm. the work that you do is to tie in these very common symptoms like right. brain fog, anxiety, depression, even early memory loss, tie them into the gut. And I had no gut symptoms. And, and I had, and so I should clarify, I had a parasite, I had an amoeba, and people will, will read on the internet and think, oh, it must be some kind of parasite if I can just identify that, that one thing that's causing all my problems. And that's a very erroneous way of thinking because this literally is the gut, an ecosystem. And it's rarely just one player that is causing all the problems. Now you can use strategies that, that kill bad players in a larger kind of therapeutic algorithm, yes. But that's probably what led me to take so long to heal was I just thought I needed to kind of kill the parasite and then there wasn't kind of the appropriate follow through. I probably could have healed in half the time 
if I had myself as a doctor, I think. And I had a good doctor who was helping me, but I was also a student, and so I couldn't afford many follow-up visits. So I, I was uh, kind of fighting an uphill battle. Um, but but the, the point I'm, I'm making is that it's not always a parasite. Sometimes there's just these imbalances that we can go to work on. And I say that because I don't want people to get stuck in the trap, as you're kind of alluding to, of, of thinking that they, they have to test everything to figure out what the what the one causative factor is. Because oftentimes it's more, as you said, dysbiosis, where there's this kind of general imbalance and we have to figure out how do we steer the ecosystem back into this more harmonious equilibrium. It's not, it's not like saying if your garden is dying and you pull out one weed, the whole garden is going to flourish. Obviously, to fix the garden, you need multifactorial interventions. That's right. Rain, sun, shade. It's a great analogy. So what about, let's talk about genomic testing. I feel like, you know, the promise of genomics is a bit like the microbiome, that we're still not quite there yet. Agreed, There's so agreed. many gene-gene interactions. It's so much more complex than, you know, you've got MTHFR, you've got to take methylated folate and methylated B vitamins. So where are you in terms of running genomic testing? Sure. I, should, I should just disclose that I'm, I'm, I really don't consider myself someone who's focusing clinically on gene testing. But I have been following the literature on it. And as best I'm able to read, the clinical trials that are testing the hypotheses aren't really promising. There's a sliver of potentially there could be benefit. And I may be you know, confusing a few of the details here, but the general point will be accurate, which was in an Asian study, large Asian study, they gave people with various MTHFR polymorphisms, folic acid. Not folate, the, the battery acid, folic acid that's supposed to you know, be so damaging. And they saw about a 30% reduction in stroke risk. Mm -hmm. So that really cuts a huge hole in the argument that MTHFR, A, is clinically relevant, and, and B, must not ever take folic acid. Mm -hmm. But it did seem that as you went from a, a more heterozygous to homozygous, so as you had more of these polymorphisms, the improvement seemed to diminish a little bit. So perhaps you could make the case that the more MTHFR polymorphisms they had, the less benefit they derived from folic acid. But all these people were still in the benefit camp. So there's one summary I, I want to say it was in the New England Journal of Medicine that essentially concluded, I believe it was a systematic review, that there's no clinical utility in MTHFR testing. There's also been a few trials that have looked at APOE4 and 3, 4, and 3 testing. And what they're trying to do is say, can we reduce cardiovascular risk markers if we give someone with APOE4 an APOE4-tailored diet compared to a healthy reference diet? Yes. No improvement was noted. Yes. The only thing that they saw was there was more dietary compliance when they essentially said, your genes make you at risk for heart attack. So uh -huh. they were scared yeah, into yeah, being yeah. more compliant. Uh, so maybe there's utility there in terms of compliance. Um, and then there was also the diet fits trial by Christopher Gardner, where they had seen in previous research some indications that polymorphisms may predict insulin sensitivity, and that may allow you to select either you go low carb or you go low fat. Yes. And that failed. Yes. So, so we're not there yet. When I look at this, you know, I have a hard time reconciling this with the people who are selling courses on genetic testing and treatment. I do like Kara Fitzgerald's approach, which mm -hmm. is an upstream yes. way of addressing this. So it's yes. not getting caught in the weeds. It's looking at gut health. It's looking at diet. It's looking at stress, and maybe a few 
uh, I believe she calls them methylation balancers. Um, yes, where adapt adaptogens. adaptogens yeah. Yes. Uh, so I could see some utility for that, but I do think another area where we're just getting way ahead of ourselves, I wouldn't be able to believe how off the mark the gene testing is if I didn't already see how off the mark the gut claims are. Uh -huh. But once I saw how bad that was, I said, well, <laughs> then this stands a reason this could be as bad as it looks from an outsider's view looking in. Well, I could keep going all day with you today. <laughs> I, I know um, that very clearly but you have to go back and see patients. Any final thoughts that you wanna share? I think it's important for people to be really bridled with the information that they read on the internet and the conclusions they take away from that. Oftentimes, in my experience, patients come in thinking X, Y, or Z situation is far worse than it actually is. They're diagnosed with SIBO and they go, SIBO, like they were, and it's yeah. really so much of these markers in functional medicine are suggestive at best, and they're not highly definitive markers. So don't uh, work yourself too much into a frenzy based upon what you read on the internet. Because again, I, I see so much harm being done. I have MTHFR, and so now I'm afraid to. I won't eat this protein bar at the airport because I'm starving because it says it's got folic acid. It's like, wow, like when did we get mm. so crazy with mm. these recommendations? So I would take a huge step back and find a clinician or an educator who you trust and respect and follow people who you trust and respect and be wary of the people who make strong claims. I think we both have exhibited throughout this conversation that we're not dead set on anything and, and we're, we're pretty flexible because there's this old saying, he who knows what he does not know is the mark of one who truly knows. Mm -hmm. Meaning if you understand <laughs> the limitations and what we understand, you're never gonna be too staunch on any one point. Um, so look for these, these indicators that someone seems to be tempered and cautious and not making strong claims. Um, and also the basics get you so far if you master the basics. I'll give you a quick example. I'm by no means an overweight guy, um, but I just lost 10 pounds of body fat. And I, I went from a flat stomach to having abs. Okay, you got my attention. Um, and, and, <laughs> and it wasn't because I used a special supplement. It was because you know I started working with a good coach and he looked at my diet and he was saying, boy, I think you're eating too much fat. Mm. And I was. Mm -hmm. And it was easy and convenient. And For your phenotype. For the way that for, your for genes me. are interacting with the environment, it was but just, just quite simply, I was eating maybe a thousand calories more than I needed to a day because the fats just went down so easily. Mm -hmm. and, and so they're delicious. Yeah, and so I made a simple change of lots more vegetables in my diet, and that has, I think, improved my energy, and it's also improved my body comp. So I'd rather see people doing things like this than saying, well, I'm NTHFR, and that must be why I'm overweight, because XGuru Online told me that it can cause some sort of aberrancy in the metabolic pathway that affects fat metabolism. Um, not to say there's never a time and a place for that, but, but the really detailed thinking where there's this whole biomechanical pathway drawn out, that's not, that's not clinical medicine. That's yes. academic research. Clinical medicine is more, took 100 people, 50 did this, 50 did placebo, here's what happened. Mm -hmm. And now we're gonna replicate that you know, in our office. I would tack on one other thing with that, which is be careful not to pursue health so vigorously that you start to impede the life that you're trying to get healthier to live. Mm. 
because sometimes what ends up happening is people just reclude and they, they kind of damage their life at the expense of getting healthier and they might actually feel better and healthier if they kept a little bit better of a balance. So. So much wisdom. How did you get so much wisdom at such a young age? I made a lot of mistakes. (laughs) Well, thank you. Well, you know, what I appreciate so much is I hear the voice of reason. I've been practicing for about 25 years, and unfortunately, I don't often hear the voice of reason. I really hear it from you. I hear it in your podcast. I hear it in your book. And I'm so grateful for how you're you're providing that to us. Thank thank you. you. I'm grateful to be able to share this with you and your audience. Thank you. Thank you for being with us for this episode of The Practice. You'll find extensive show notes, including links and supportive materials over at thepracticepodcast.tv. While you're there, explore other topics and use the Ask and Answer button to ask your burning questions and give your insights about the topic. After all, the future of medicine lies in dialogue, not dogma. Let's transform medicine together by connecting on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find all the links at thepracticepodcast.tv. This podcast, including any related materials such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. This podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship and should not be considered a substitute for the independent professional judgment of any physician or healthcare professional regarding the appropriate course of action for a particular patient or individual. Metagenics does not make any guarantees regarding the accuracy, completeness, or usefulness of this podcast for any particular purpose. Listeners may use this podcast at their own risk and patients should not disregard or delay seeking advice from their healthcare providers based on the content of this podcast. Participation through the Ask and Answer button is optional and no participant should feel obligated to provide personal details including about any diagnosis, symptoms, or other health-related information. Neither Metagenics Institute nor any of its affiliates seek this information and it is not necessary to participate in the dialogue regarding this podcast. The podcast presenters' views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of its research partners and collaborators, collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Listening to this podcast does not obligate you to purchase, use, recommend, or prescribe any Metagenics or Metagenics Institute products or services, including their educational materials. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Unless approved by Metagenics Institute, this podcast must be used only for personal, non-commercial purposes. This podcast has no independent economic value and is intended to comply with all applicable laws. It may be rescinded, revoked, or amended at any time without notice. Listeners who are patients should talk to their healthcare providers if they have any questions regarding the content discussed in this podcast. Listeners who are healthcare professionals may obtain more information by visiting metagenicsinstitute.com, calling 888 690 or emailing med.ed at metagenicsinstitute.com.